Hello, I'm Amelia Rankert-Thomas, the author of Engaged Ownership, a guide for owners of family businesses. Welcome to part two of the Engaged Ownership audiobook. Part two, getting organized. Owen family, June 2nd, 2011. Michael Owen, age 41, president of Owen Products Limited. It was a complete shock when my father died. I was coming home from a sales convention when I got the call on my mobile phone. My dad had been so healthy, we all expected him to live into his 90s at least. The memorial service was amazing. Just about all our suppliers and customers came. He was so well-liked, my dad. The success of Owen Products really is a testament to him. He grew up from a small company that my grandfather started in 1948. 62 years later, we're the biggest terracotta pot manufacturer in the country with the highest quality. That's a tough act to follow. Our customers depend on us and we deliver. Sometimes I wonder if I'm really the guy to do the job, but then I think my granddad and dad learned to do it, so I can too. The company means a lot to me. Knowing all that goes into making our pots and everything we've sacrificed as a family to stay in this business keeps me motivated. My grandmother gave her most prized possession, her grandmother's diamond ring, for this business. My grandfather sank every penny he earned back into the business and then rebuilt the plant after the kiln explosion in 1959. My dad opened Owen Products West and tripled the size of the business. So now it's my job to lead it forward. I think my sisters and brothers feel the same way about our family in Owen Products, I'd like to see all our kids come work here. My wife, Jane, reminds me that as much as she loves her mother-in-law, she is not willing to make the same sacrifices my mom did. She knows I didn't get to see my dad that much, and she doesn't want our twins, Kate and Chloe, to grow up without their dad. She has told me in no uncertain terms that I need to expand the management team so that I won't be traveling between the two plants all the time. But how am I going to make sure that the place is running properly if I'm not there? Martha Owen Jones, age 40, homemaker. My dad was an amazing guy. We didn't always get to see him. He traveled all the time. But we knew he loved us. He was very driven. I've tried to adopt my mom's attitude about the company. We all make contributions and sacrifices, and it has a little bit of all of us in it. I'm tied to Owen Products in two ways now, by my shares and by my husband Ryan's job running operations at Owen Products West. I used to work at the company in a sort of sideways way, working in the community fund, but I retired when Ryan and I had our son, Jameson, in 1998. My mom raised four kids while dad was away all the time. I have no idea how she did it. Ryan is still at Owen Products because he always had a lot of respect for my dad. It's tougher now for Ryan now that Charlie is gone. Mike doesn't have the same operations background, and he really depends on Ryan to keep Owen Products West running. I think Mike should give Ryan a major raise and a promotion, and I told him so last week. I'd really like to see Jameson join the business after university. He's already talking about studying ceramic engineering. He wants to be just like his dad, his granddad, and his great-granddad. Amanda Owen Cooper, age 35, 
attorney. This family business needs some professionalization. As a partner at a major firm here in the West, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of family-owned businesses, and I've learned that to succeed in the third generation, you can't just keep doing the same things. You've got to get organized. If we're going to be successful, I'd like to see us put in place some of their practices, create a shareholders agreement, bring on more independent directors, reorganize the management team, restructure compensation and distributions. Sometimes I wonder why Ryan, who's married to my sister Martha, and who also runs our Western facility, puts up with us. Martha told me that Ryan has been offered a great job by our biggest competitor, but Mike isn't paying any attention since he's focusing on some issue back east. I'm on the board, but I don't know how much I can help. I've got my hands full here between my job, raising our little boys, Eric and Pete, and now on top of all of that, being trustee of Alfred's Trust. My family has always stood for taking care of each other, and the company has always been our safety net. As the company and the family get bigger, how are we going to be able to keep those promises to each other? Would it be better to sell the business and protect our capital rather than keep risking it? Christopher Owen, age 34, professor. I'm an associate professor at Eastern University in the Applied Mathematics Department. Last week, I was notified that my team had received a government grant to further our work in combustion synthesis. We are developing methods to create nanoscale catalysts through high-temperature combustion. My family looks at me like I'm from Mars sometimes, but it's an entirely logical progression. My grandfather and David Smith developed new techniques to fire clay, and I'm just using firing techniques for a different purpose. With this grant, my team will be able to refine our combustion processes. There are infinite industrial applications for this technology. To realize the full possibilities is going to take all my time and effort. My apologies for cutting this short. I'm late for a meeting. Owen Family, July 5th, 2011. Martha Owen Jones. The four of us agreed that we should meet to hold a shareholders meeting to talk about Owen products. Together, we own the company. The four of us each own 18.75% individually, and Amanda also owns 25% as trustee for Alfred's Trust. When we realized that she legally owns 43.75%, we were worried that she would try to make all the decisions about the company. But she reminded us that as a trustee, she has a duty to make decisions for the trust's shares solely for Alfred's benefit, not for her own. So in a way, she's like two separate shareholders. I agreed to be secretary for our shareholder group and to keep minutes of all our meetings. I used to do this for our sorority, so my past practice comes in handy. We made a chart showing our roles. Mike has all four roles. He's the president of the company, he's a director, he's an owner, and he's a family member. Amanda is in three. She's a director, owner, and family member. We put her in as an owner twice to represent her trusteeship. Christopher and I are in two roles. We are owners and family members. That led us to ask, well, what about spouses? Mike reminded us that dad and granddad always talked about keeping ownership to bloodline family. I pointed out that mom and Nana Leah have been as critical to our success as dad and granddad. 
we decided that our definition of family would include spouses and children. And at Christopher's recommendation, we included significant others who have been with a family member for more than four years to include Christopher's girlfriend, Amatia. Amanda wanted us to begin working on a shareholders agreement right away, but we decided to start slowly and figure out where we're headed with Owen products before we tackle policies on who can be an owner of the company. Our first formal task as owners is to approve the slate of directors at the annual shareholders meeting. Mike was ready to keep the board as it is, but Amanda suggested that we add two more independent directors to the slate who would help us professionalize. That is her mantra, professionalize. Sometimes the rest of us roll our eyes when she gets on our high horse, but she has a point because owning Owen products is a huge responsibility. Mike got annoyed because Dad always chose the board, and now that he is president, he felt he should have the same powers. Amanda reminded him that ultimately the owners are responsible for appointing the board. Dad wore all the hats when he was alive. He owned 75% of the shares, ran the company, chaired the board, and was head of our family, so it wasn't always clear what role he was in when he made a decision. Anyway, all of us, even Mike, agreed it would be good to add some strategic planning expertise and some combustion technology expertise to the board, and that one of the new directors should come from the east and one from the west for balance. We talked for a while about candidates. Amanda is going to ask one of her neighbors, a third-generation owner of a successful ceramic tile manufacturing company, if he would be interested. Christopher, to our surprise, recommended a colleague from Eastern University's business school who specializes in strategic planning, who's been working with his team in the applied mathematics department. Christopher is always surprising us because he appears to be lost in the clouds and then he comes up with some really good ideas. Toward the end of our meeting, Christopher suddenly said, I think we need to decide our capital structure. We must have all looked more than a little puzzled because he began talking about capital and investment opportunities and mezzanine financing and about debt and equity. Apparently, he's been reading up on businesses and he has some ideas. I reminded everyone that we want to start with the question why we want to be shareholders together. Because, except for a few years between Uncle Fred's retirement and his passing, Owen Products has never had owners who didn't work in the business. This is a completely new state of affairs, and we need to go carefully and keep ourselves aligned as a group. Two things we want to keep in mind. We want to preserve our family, and we want to do the right thing for the business. Now we just need to figure out what the right thing actually means for us. Chapter 4, Family Business Roles and Relationships Within a family business, there are four distinct roles, owners, board, managers, employees, and family. Some individuals will play more than one role. Some may play all four. Be forewarned. The descriptions below may seem foreign to owner managers who run their businesses because the distinctions may seem unnecessarily specific particularly the description of the independent board. The independent board of directors described in this section has become increasingly common as family businesses have borrowed governance practices from public companies. But certainly not all family enterprises have boards comprised of a majority of non-family industry specialists. 
We have used the independent board here not to enter the debate over advisory versus fiduciary boards or to recommend one form of board over the other. Independent directors can bring experience, expertise, connections, and perspective. They can also bring assumptions about the purpose and strategy of the business that don't align with the owner's shared purpose or vision for the core capital. We've highlighted the independent board here because it can create impediments to engaged ownership that a family owner-driven board might not by further distancing owners from active participation in decision-making. Owners. Owners are the legal owners of the enterprise. This ownership interest means that they hold the ultimate power in the enterprise system because only they have the ultimate power to form, sell, or shutter the enterprise and to reinvest core capital within the business or redeploy it outside the business. All decision-making power thus flows from ownership. Typically, the owners reserve some decision-making powers, for example, electing directors, and delegate other decision-making powers to the board, for example, approving strategy. Though, as we'll see, there is considerable room for creative delegation of powers. Engaged owners organize themselves and their interactions with overseers, management employees, and family to ensure that decision-making is informed, timely, and appropriate for their vision for the deployment of their core capital. Owners receive distributions based on their percentage ownership, which represents a return on the core capital invested in the business. Board. This is the group most commonly known as the board of directors, though it may be known as the manager's committee in an LLC or the board of trustees in a charitable foundation. Generally, the board's primary role is as the chief overseer of the enterprise. The owners typically delegate to the board the responsibility for setting approving strategy for the enterprise, hiring senior management, and monitoring performance. The board meets regularly, typically quarterly, with senior management to review and evaluate performance in light of the strategic plan and to consider opportunities and potential threats to the enterprise. Directors represent the owners and owe fiduciary duties to the owners and the enterprise. They must act with loyalty, avoiding even the appearance of conflict of interest, and with due care. The board will typically include the chief executive of the business and one or more owners, as well as one or more independent directors. A strong board brings perspective, knowledge, and industry access to assist and support management. Independent directors typically have high-level management or board experience in the business sector in which the business operates, and so can provide useful influence and contacts. Particularly for a smaller family business operating in a major industry, having one or more independent directors with public company experience can provide insight into industry practice that they might not otherwise be able to access. The board thus can be a potent force for bringing greater professionalization as well as financial and operational discipline to a family business. Board members may hold shares in the business and may also receive compensation for their efforts. Managers and employees. The board in turn hires the chief executive of the business and typically delegates day-to-day decision-making and operational responsibilities to management. Management and employees then operate the business in accordance with a strategic plan approved by the board. 
In essence, they are responsible for carrying out the work of the business. Management is responsible for assembling the team and resources needed to accomplish the plan and managing the process on a day-to-day basis. Because management is closest to the operations, managers typically have the deepest knowledge of the business and market conditions, as well as tactical issues and opportunities that may exist. Management and employees receive compensation and sometimes shares in exchange for their efforts. Family. For a family business, the family itself is the source of the entrepreneurial spirit and values that lie at the core of business culture. Every family business is different because every family is different. Family members may play other roles, managers, directors, owners, but their relationship as family members is always at the center of their decision-making. Families define their boundaries differently. Some define family to include bloodline descendants only, while other families are highly inclusive of in-laws, stepchildren, and sometimes even former in-laws who are now divorced from family members. Different Perspectives Four groups, owners, board, management, family, will have four different points of view. Given the different roles that each group plays within the family business and the reality that core capital is finite, each group will have its own focus and strongly held views about how the capital should be deployed. Here again, the descriptions may seem too narrowly drawn to the owner-manager who serves in multiple roles, but our purpose is to describe the central focus of each group. Keep in mind that any one individual might belong in more than one, or perhaps even all, of the groups. Management. Management will be business-focused and will tend toward deploying available core capital to strengthen the business activities of the business. Depending on how compensation and bonuses are structured, management may have an incentive to promote and pursue options that increase their individual involvement in the business and the financial rewards they can receive over the course of their careers. As a general rule, members of management will prefer to retain core capital within the business rather than distribute it and will prefer to continue existing businesses rather than redeploy capital into different business areas that would not be included under their aegis. Management might ask, how much inventory do we need to build this quarter to prepare for the holiday rush, and how will that investment impact our cash flow? Our sales manager is retiring. Should we recruit from the industry, or should we promote from within? What tactics will be most likely to enable us to hit our sales budget? Our profit targets. Board. The board, in their role as overseers, will also be business-focused, but they will tend to bring a longer-term, more strategic viewpoint as befits their more periodic involvement. Independent board members will tend to be well-schooled in business financial metrics, but may have had little prior experience with privately held businesses and so may lack perspective on the value of non-financial core capital and the needs and perspectives of family members. The board will tend to push management to perform better and achieve greater results, primarily from a financial viewpoint. The board may be more open than management to looking at investing in new businesses, but will not generally look beyond the existing industry or business sector of the business. The board would generally prefer to have core capital retained within the business rather than distributed out or redirected to other opportunities. The board might ask, 
What is our strategy for growing market share? Is building inventory the best use for available cash, or should we invest in new equipment to reduce manufacturing cycle time? What are the career timelines for all senior staff, and are we preparing the next generation of leaders? We have cash. Have we evaluated acquisition targets? Family. Family will be interested in the business in different ways. Time and availability are elements of human capital, and family members who aren't involved in the business may push to have the business take up less of the family's time together. Some family members may seek employment or business opportunities from the business. Family members who don't participate in the business may nonetheless derive social standing in the community from it. They may enjoy additional social capital, a greater reputation in the community, and increased social or even business opportunities because of their association with the business. And so they may push for decisions that enhance social capital and against those that they feel would harm it, such as, for example, closing a manufacturing facility in the community. Family members might ask, why do we always talk about the business at the dinner table? Will my children be able to look to the business for career opportunities? The company just announced that it's closing our local manufacturing facility. Will this affect my friendships within the community? When will I inherit shares? Owners. Owners will be deeply interested in the performance of the business, but will also tend to look more broadly at issues of how core capital should be deployed. They will look for a long-term return on their core capital, but will also seek to have the business deploy core capital in ways that support the shared purpose which may puzzle or even frustrate non-family management and board who have a narrower financial focus. They may seek to harvest core capital from a successful business in order to nurture a new entrepreneurial effort, particularly an effort being developed by a family member, a move that might be opposed by board and non-family management alike. They may devote considerable time and energy exposing family to the business in order to build engagement in the next generation, which may seem unnecessary and intrusive to non-family management. Because owners have a broader view of capital than do border management, owners may be more inclined than border management to oppose a choice that damages human or financial capital, even if their opposition may impair financial capital to some degree. Trustee owners will have a somewhat different focus. Their fiduciary duties will require them to make ownership decisions based on the needs of the beneficiaries of the trust, which may conflict with other owners' vision for the future of their core capital. Owners might ask, how will the proposed business strategy impact our ability to pay dividends in the future? Might this new, edgy marketing campaign hurt our hard-earned reputation in this town? Should we measure our success by local employment or by social responsibility or by environmental impact and not just profits? Should we be investing in products and services being developed by talented family members to carry on our family's legacy of innovation, even if that means pulling money away from the business? Roles affect perspective. The biggest challenge for individuals in a family business is to recognize which roles they play and how those roles affect their perspective regarding the business, 
One of the biggest challenges to engage donorship occurs when an individual plays multiple roles because playing multiple roles increases the odds that discussions will take place and decisions may even be made in the wrong forum without the knowledge or participation of others who should properly be part of the decision-making process. When owners, board, management, and family recognize their roles, they can more clearly articulate their own position and also see how others perceive an issue. This self-awareness helps to develop empathy and increase the likelihood that business issues will be considered and addressed more thoroughly. Owen Family, September 6, 2011 Allison Alley Owen It has been eye-opening and heartening in equal measure to watch my children begin to take on the task of being owners. I had pushed Charlie to put the shares in a trust and appoint one person as trustee to minimize the risk of a major disagreement that would destroy the family. But he opted to follow family tradition and give the children the shares. Then, when the board voted Mike as president, I assumed he would simply take charge and the other three would go back to their own lives and not pay much attention to the company. Well, clearly I was not giving our children enough credit. They recognize that they're owners, that their name is on the door, and that they are ultimately responsible for how the company goes forward. In particular, Martha's leadership is a surprise to me. Once she decided to stop working when Jameson was born, she didn't pay all that much attention to the business, other than to stand up for her husband, Ryan, when she felt her dad or her brother didn't give him enough credit for his contributions at Owen Products. Now she's leading the owners, but quietly without any fanfare, toward what seems from my vantage to be a more organized, thoughtful, consensus-based decision-making process. Amanda and Christopher want to jump to the meaty technical questions about structuring and financing, and Michael mostly just wants quick approval for his plans, but Martha pulls them back to the biggest questions, saying gently that there is a lot at stake here and that they have the responsibility to do the right thing. I was thinking this morning about how different Charlie's decision-making process was. He'd watched his father from the time he was born. John and Leah told me stories about how Charlie would follow his father around the plant whenever he could. And he quickly adopted John's style. Every decision of any importance came directly to Charlie. He delegated very little, which often frustrated his employees and slowed down progress. Being at the center of every decision also meant that Charlie needed to be everywhere at once, and he started the crazy travel back and forth between the eastern and western facilities every week. But Charlie, like his father, John, didn't see his management style as inefficient. He saw doing everything as his job, the only way to keep everything under control and on track. His formal training was in engineering, not business, and he was far more comfortable when he could measure and calculate things himself. His name was on the door, and he was responsible. His uncle Fred, who owned the other 25% of the shares, John awarded them to Fred when Fred joined the business and took over the finances, might have insisted on a bigger role, but Fred was so drained by the dual responsibilities of managing the company's finances and taking care of his son, Alfred, after his wife died, that he happily delegated control to Charlie. And Charlie always saw Fred as a surrogate father figure after John died, so I think Fred managed to keep Charlie aware of his interests in an indirect way. Chapter 5. The Legacy of the Past, 
Natural Governance, Family History, and Culture. Natural Governance. It would be a mistake to think that a family business without a formal written governance system has no governance. All the groups in the family business system, family, owners, board, management, aspire to a state of equilibrium. Everyone wants to be free to attend to his or her needs, wishes, interests, and responsibilities, whatever they may be, without stepping on others' toes. To keep this equilibrium, many family businesses from their first days evolve a form of natural governance that is largely based on assumptions, expectations, and understandings, rather than the tangible structures and policies of formal decision-making systems. This natural governance system might be called how we do things around here, and it is one of the hallmarks of family businesses. Natural governance is particularly apparent when a family business is run by a controlling owner, an owner who owns a majority of the voting power and who also manages the business. This is because the controlling owner is at the center of all decision-making and occupies all the main roles in the business, owner, director, manager, family member. Those around him know the types of behavior or actions that will meet with his approval or disapproval. Furthermore, there is often little or no formal decision-making structure in a business led by a controlling owner and few hurdles to jump to get from idea to decision. Natural governance can be invigorating when it works well. Those involved in the business feel in sync and enjoy working in an environment where decision-making is quick and informal and where there is little bureaucracy. For any business that is growing quickly and achieving success in a competitive market, natural governance can be a source of strategic advantage vis-a-vis organizations with more formal, structured decision-making. This sense of being in the zone decision-wise is part of the allure of startups and fast companies. Sometimes, family businesses will have formal governance systems, bylaws, rules, regulations, and policies that are consciously ignored. This tends to happen when the governance system was created in a vacuum and not designed, adopted, and practiced by those within the system. Formal governance systems tend to be overlooked or overridden when they don't fit the organization's existing way of doing things or when they're imposed by one group without buy-in or participation from the other groups. Natural governance can be very adaptable and resilient, but there often will come a time when the way we do things around here won't generate the answers and decisions needed to move the business forward. As complexity increases within the business and within the groups that make up family, owners, board, and management, there may come a time when the business participants need more formal rules and processes and greater clarity around rules and responsibilities to enable the participants to make effective decisions on a timely basis. This may happen when the business gets large enough that it needs a management team or begins to operate in multiple locations especially when those locations are at a distance from each other, whether in terms of geography, culture, or activity, or enters an industry with significant regulatory or compliance requirements. It can happen as the ownership group expands, perhaps as a controlling owner develops an estate plan that divides his ownership amongst his children. 
two particular changes are especially likely to tip natural governance systems into chaotic disorganization. Management succession and ownership succession, especially when they occur simultaneously and unexpectedly. This is because the person around whom the controlling owner system was built and whose patterns of decision-making formed the core of the natural governance system is suddenly absent and unable to reinforce prior decision-making or create new precedents. When natural governance fails following unexpected succession, confusion spreads throughout the system and there may be attempts by an individual, usually a family member in management, to step into the controlling owner role and reassert the natural governance system that existed under the controlling owner. Sometimes, such efforts are successful, and natural governance returns to a state of equilibrium. Sometimes, however, those within the system, management, family members, board, owners, reject the newcomer as the source of control and scramble to maximize their own power. These are difficult moments for any business because the business and its core capital will be at risk if the decision-making system flounders and a battle for control of the business is ignited. In such situations, refocusing around developing greater engagement among the ownership group and between owners, board, management, and family through a clear, transparent process of governance design that is accepted by all will help create a more effective base for decision-making going forward. Owen Family, October 4th, 2011. Allison Alley Owen. Nearly two years ago, Charlie died. We are all learning to manage without him, but finding different ways to cope. Mike is facing a quandary right now, though I'm not sure he can see it clearly. His duty as president of the company and his desire to be a good husband and father to twins are in conflict. He is finding that his father's shoes and his wife's anger are both very uncomfortable, and I can see that he is worrying that he might let both the business and his family down. Perhaps, in a way, it's my doing that he finds itself at this crossroads because I chose to honor the obligation Charlie felt to his parents and the business, and so I picked up most of the responsibility for our children. It was a different era back in the 1970s, certainly, but I made the choice willingly in spite of having excellent career prospects of my own. I think that my mother-in-law Leah's example of giving up her grandmother's diamond ring to help fund the startup inspired me to make a gift to the business that would be a symbol of my own commitment. Now, I'm not so sure that I would give everything for the business, and I'm going to do what I can to let Mike know that he is not obligated to make the choice his father made. I also think that making the choice to manage differently and to think about the business differently might help his siblings in the business. It never really was possible for one person to manage the business by himself. Charlie just followed the path his father set, and he assumed it was the right path. All of us around him could see that the addition of the Western facility was both a great business idea and an impossible management task for one inclined to do it all himself. But Charlie needed to prove that he, like his father, could create an entirely new business. The problem is, the question wasn't whether he could do it. The real question was whether the investment was worth it. 
Mike will need to make his own choice, but I want him to make it with his eyes wide open, weighing the options and the cost. The Enterprise as Family Member A family business created from the sweat of the founder and all the core capital that could be mustered over many years often comes to be seen not just as a person, but sometimes as the most favored member of the family. The business itself, its activities, customers, employees, premises, equipment, technology, brands, becomes the primary focus of family discussion, attention, and concern. Thus, the business may, like the prodigal son, become the recipient of inordinate amounts of time, attention, love, and resource. For a family member who suddenly finds himself an owner of the family business, generally as a result of an estate planning transfer, the fact that the business is treated as a favored member of the family may make engagement more difficult to imagine and achieve. Children who've grown up around the business that has been treated as a favored family member will tend either to carry on that practice or to recoil from the ownership role. This is because a business that was viewed by its founder as a special child comes to be seen by a child or grandchild who comes to own shares as an august and powerful personage for good or for ill. The challenge for engaged ownership is that what begins as a learned attitude of respect can become a paralyzing fear of offending, with the result that the new shareholder is reluctant to take any action that might create disruption or hurt the business in any way. But can respect be carried too far? The ugly truth is that well-managed businesses fail every day. Markets evolve, governmental regulations are voted in and out, products go out of fashion, science and technology advance. A business that fails will take much of the core capital with it. Owners who take seriously their role in sustaining core capital will recognize that role must include developing an ongoing conversation with board and family about how the core capital is being deployed, what risks and opportunities exist, and whether capital should be redeployed in other ways, even if that might mean downsizing the existing business or exiting it altogether. Owners who view the business as an august senior member of the family are less likely to ask the tough questions that engaged owners need to ask. This problem can be especially difficult when the business is performing poorly. If the business is considered a family member, it may receive life support in the form of major infusions of additional financial capital rather than the tough, thoughtful, swift, and measured action that may be needed to sustain the core capital. Owen Family, October 4, 2011. Martha Owen Jones. It's been almost two years since Dad's death, and all of us siblings, our husbands, wives, and children, spent the day with Mom today. She's coping, though she seems lonely sometimes. Having the five grandchildren all together was fun. My son, Jameson, who just turned 13, got to spend some time with Mike and Jane's twin girls, who are 17 and applying to university this year. The three of them played with Amanda's sons, who are six and four. It took a lot to get Christopher to come. He kept saying he had too much work and too much travel, and his girlfriend Amatia had to teach, but he finally came. Mom went off on a walk with the grandchildren after dinner, and we kids were hanging out in the living room of the old house drinking what was left of the wine. 
Christopher had enough to relax a little for once and explain his work in combustion synthesis to us. Amanda asked a lot of technical and legal questions the way she always does, and Mike began asking him whether there were any applications of the technology that might be useful to Owen products. Christopher said that our plant equipment was essentially prehistoric, but there were many applications of his technology that could ultimately change the way commercial greenhouses would operate and that we should reconsider our long-term capital investment strategy. Mike started to respond with our grandfather's mantra, people will always want potted plants and terracotta is the best possible pot for growing them. When Amanda's husband, Paul, began to laugh, he has known Amanda, all of us, in fact, since we were kids, and he still remembers John. You know, there are all these sayings you guys inherited along with the business. People will always want potted plants. Do whatever it takes. Keep the shares in the family. Do you ever stop and think about these? We sort of looked at him for a moment, and the Mike said, Always reinvest your cash flow. Amanda laughed and added, Trust family first. My husband, Ryan, looked thoughtful and said, Owens manage Owen products. Mike's wife, Jane, nodded and added, Only distribute it if you can't think of any other use for the cash. The conversation continued in that vein for a while and then got a little bit goofy as we thought about our dad and drank some more wine. But I can't help thinking about Paul's question. Maybe we need to reconsider some of the rules that have been handed down to us. Culture, attitudes, and assumptions. All organizations have a culture, a collection of norms and practices, a distinct way of thinking about and expressing what they do. The culture of an organization is a complex product of the environment, the backgrounds, values, and attitudes of its founders and participants, and their reactions and solutions to the challenges that they have grappled with over time. Edgar Schein defines the culture of an organization as a pattern of shared basic assumptions learned by a group as it solved its problems, what works and what doesn't. Those assumptions become integral to the culture of the organization, how we do things around here, and part of the way that the group defines itself, in essence, its personality. Natural governance can thus be seen as part of the unique culture of a family business. Particularly to latecomers, culture is invisible, but highly pervasive and very like the oxygen in the atmosphere. Hard to see, but always there. Family businesses have especially strong and unique cultures, particularly those that were founder-driven and founder-funded for a substantial period of time. This is because one person has been at the center of decision-making and control for decades, and that person's solutions to challenges, the way he defined the challenges and the resources he drew on to solve it, the tactics he used to rally others to the cause, become encoded in the culture. People around the founder, senior staff, employees, and outsiders, including customers, suppliers, bankers, accountants, and lawyers, all come to understand the founder's particular way of doing things and learn as best they can to operate successfully within the founder's orbit. It should come as little surprise that founders who are highly charismatic or quick-tempered tend to produce very distinct cultures as those around them learn to accommodate their unique and possibly explosive decision-making style. 
Family businesses are also unique from a cultural standpoint because the founders' attitudes and assumptions tend to shape the culture of the family as well as the business. As a result, children absorb many of those attitudes and assumptions from an early age. Most of those attitudes revolve around the importance of the business and the primacy of management in decision-making. Consider a founder-run business that struggled to survive through a major recession. Cash was tight, banks pulled credit lines and refused to lend, customers paid late or not at all, and management was forced to cut payroll. Survival depended on eliminating dividends, saving money wherever possible, and reinvesting every penny of cash flow. Possibly, Family members contributed or loaned cash to the business to sustain operations. For the business that struggled through this difficult time but ultimately succeeded, the lessons, we tighten our belts, and cash is king, would become embedded in the culture. But not only would the culture of the business come to reflect these new values, so would the culture of the family. Belt tightening and thrift would become core values of the family, reinforced through dinner table discussion and family policies. We tighten our belts makes good business sense at the right time. Aversion to debt or spending may stunt the business's growth in better times and hamper the growth of core capital. The challenge of cultural change that follows a traumatic period such as a deep recession or rapid and disruptive market change is that it may emphasize and promote attitudes and behaviors that don't suit all circumstances and environments. Another common but less obvious attitude is earn-to-own. In a society that reveres self-made entrepreneurs and looks askance at inherited wealth, a founding owner may impress upon his children the value of self-reliance and the importance of earning one's own way in the world. He may even create policies that award shares to those children that come to work in the business. If that founding owner then at some point in the future gives his shares in the business in equal shares to his adult children, perhaps through a sophisticated planning transaction that saves taxes and thereby preserves financial and business capital for the future, the owner might be well pleased by the success of his planning. The adult children, however, may be at a loss. They've just received the very thing that their father worked hardest to create without having to do anything in return. The conflicting messages become even more difficult to decipher if they are also told, you were given your shares, you didn't earn them. Business decisions aren't yours to make. Such messages thwart engagement and may leave recipients both anxious and passive. Difficult Conversations Family businesses develop existences of their own, becoming living systems. In some family business cultures, it can be taboo for those who don't run the business to request money from it. Such a request might be seen as unfair to the business or perhaps as a violation of the earn-to-own attitude. In other businesses, it can be taboo to discuss shrinking or exiting a business activity that has been conducted by the family over generations. Such an action would be akin to ending the life of a family member. But however highly revered a business is by the family owner's board and management, the uncomfortable reality is that circumstances change and well-regarded, well-managed businesses fail every day. No business, no matter how revered, can be assured of permanent survival. 
and when a business fails, much of its human, financial, and enterprise capital is lost forever. As difficult as it may be for owners to stand up to family, management, and board to question whether it makes sense to continue in a business activity that has been part of a family's legacy for generations, it's important for engaged owners to look squarely at whether core capital is being deployed optimally and to engage the board and senior management on such questions. This ability to come together with board and family to talk about business choices openly, even when doing so may be taboo, is a hallmark of engaged ownership. Owen Family, January 28, 2012. Martha Owen Jones. At the suggestion of one of our new board members, the family business owner, we shareholders decided to hold a two-day retreat to discuss our core capital and articulate our shared purpose and vision for the future of Owen Products Limited. It was nearly impossible to get the four of us together, but the board has asked us to explain our vision before they undertake their strategic planning process for the coming fiscal year. We brought in a facilitator recommended by our other new board member, the business school professor. I'm glad we did because it turns out we're not necessarily as aligned as we thought we were about the future of the company. And the facilitator kept us from interrupting each other and kept tensions from spilling over into arguments. We learned a lot about the business and each other in this session. Before we even got started, Mike told us that he just wasn't sure he wanted the job of president. That caused us all to panic a bit and to try to solve the problem right there and then. Then Christopher said he just didn't have the time for any of this and needed to get back to his office. Amanda kept looking at her phone. The facilitator helped us calm down, hold our ideas and complaints, and focus on the agenda. We had all committed to these two days together. Were we, as owners, committed to coming to consensus on the path ahead? Since we knew we couldn't solve Mike's problem or deal with the leadership question until we had determined our shared purpose and vision for Owen Products, we agreed to stick with the plan for the retreat. Starting with the core capital helped us get focused. We realized that we have all kinds of capital in many forms. Christopher was tense at first, but then he began to relax and participate a little, and his inputs were surprising. We had no idea he knew so much about ceramics manufacturing. He helped us recognize that our work at Owen Products is innovative, even though we're in an old line kind of business. We also began to get excited thinking about all the processes and products that our family has developed over decades and how we've helped create new businesses within Owen Products. So here's our statement of core capital of Owen Products Limited and the Owen family. Financial capital. Annual sales, $30 million. EBITDA, $2.5 million. Debt, $3 million outstanding on a $6 million line of credit at LIBOR plus 2%, secured by inventory, real property, and equipment. Capital investment budget, $2 million per year. We agreed to get an appraisal of the company to get an understanding of the value of our shares for estate planning purposes. We agreed to engage an investment banker on a limited basis to get an understanding of the value of Owen products compared with comparable companies. Human capital. Close-knit family. Very well-educated. Loyal. 
ingenuity. Owners interested in business and willing to be actively involved. Excellent employer-employee relationships. Reputation as an industry leader. Reputation as a corporate good citizen in towns where our plants are located. Values. Hard work, integrity, discipline, loyalty, safeguarding each other. Enterprise capital. Extensive knowledge of ceramics manufacturing systems. Deep knowledge of eastern and western regional clays. Expertise in forming of complex shapes with ceramic materials. Expertise in customizing firing environments to specific attributes of ceramic materials. Expertise in doing business with numerous small greenhouse customers operating on very tight margins. Expertise in custom logistics systems for doing business with major growers with stringent customer service requirements and timelines. Process management expertise. Legal expertise. Water conservation regulations, greenhouse, and grower regulations. Chapter 6, Enumerating Core Capital. There are potentially an infinite numbers of ways to define capital. While financial and human capital are widely recognized, enterprise capital may be less familiar. The ability to combine resources in ways that generate new value, enterprise capital, is a form of well-honed alchemy mastered by many business-owning families. Owners who recognize enterprise capital as part of their core capital will be less inclined to undervalue their businesses or overlook opportunities to invest in and generate a return from the savvy in their lineage. As a refresher, this book looks at three types of core capital. One, financial capital, money and equivalents, the income and distributions from the business, the financial value of physical assets such as equipment, raw materials, inventories, and real estate, human and social capital, their individual and family relationships, their talents, drive, perseverance, grit, and determination, strongly held values, and their entrepreneurial zeal, the formal and informal education they received, and the experience and knowledge base they hold individually and as a group. Social capital includes the family's relationships and connections, its influence, its values, the reservoir of goodwill and family members' good name within the family, the business, and the wider community. Number three, enterprise capital. Innovations in research, design, product, service, process, unique know-how, Combinations of capital unique to the family and its business that generate a return greater than what the separate elements would generate individually, and the societal value of the product or service the business provides. Financial capital. Financial capital is at the core of any business. A failing business, one that consumes financial capital rather than generating it, cannot endure. In developing their shared purpose and vision, Owners may not put profitability first on their list of priorities, but profitability and positive cash flow will need to be achieved and sustained if the core capital in all its forms is to be sustained. That is because a failing business will slowly destroy other forms of core capital as it consumes financial capital. 
while a successful business will sustain and grow financial and other forms of core capital. Key questions for engaged owners around financial capital are, what is the business worth if it were to be sold? What is the business worth on a going concern basis? How much free cash flow does it generate? Is the cash flow expected to be distributed to owners or reinvested in the business? What are the longer-term prospects for the income stream from the business? Is this business expected to become more profitable or less? How much capital reinvestment will be necessary to sustain the revenue stream over time? How leveraged is this business? How does the economic return to the owners compare with what would be generated if the business were sold and the financial capital deployed in different businesses or invested in a securities portfolio? The financial statements of the business will be the owner's starting point in determining what the business is worth and how much cash it generates. Owners who don't have a financial background should be forewarned that the demands of tax reporting and accounting methods often result in financials that satisfy the Financial Accounting Standards Board, the Internal Revenue Service, and other regulators, but don't reliably indicate profitability as owners would seek to understand it. Furthermore, different types of businesses and different industries account differently. For example, manufacturing businesses that are building inventory for future sales may show a paper profit. They will also show negative cash flow. If the business will sell the inventory in the reasonable future, in other words, if the inventory is good inventory, then odds are good that the investment will pay off, the profits will be realized, and cash will increase in the future. However, if the inventory isn't saleable, then the cash invested in an inventory was wasted, and the profit shown on the financial statements is fictitious. Engaged owners who don't have sophisticated financial knowledge and understanding of how a particular business and industry will make money will want to discuss the financials with the chief financial officer of the business and perhaps with other knowledgeable individuals to understand the financial statements whether the business is profitable, and whether it is generating or using cash, and why. Theoretically, the owners can determine one measure of financial capital from the balance sheet of the business by looking up shareholders' equity on the balance sheet. However, in practice, owners will need to look at financial capital through several different lenses in order to gain a full understanding of the financial capital of the business. Asset value. One way of valuing a business is by adding together the fair market value of the assets, then subtracting the liabilities. The balance sheet of the business can be a good place to begin looking at valuation, but further inquiry will be needed. That's because the balance sheet of the business generally shows assets at historic value before depreciation. The actual value of assets, land, equipment, inventory, investments, intellectual property, is known as fair market value and is defined as the price a willing buyer would pay a willing seller for the asset. The challenge for owners is that the market value of an asset may vary, sometimes wildly, from the values shown on the financial statements, which generally reflect adjusted cost. Assets might be worth multiples or fractions of their cost depending on their age, condition, location, or alternative use. Land that was purchased when it was cheap scrub farmland or an abandoned brownfields industrial site 
may now be located in a booming industrial park or an urban area. Custom-designed and built equipment or software was expensive to purchase and so will be shown at a high valuation, yet may be so specialized that no other business would find it useful, with the result that it will bring little or no value at resale. For businesses with substantial intangible assets, such as goodwill, asset value will understate the value of the business. It's important for engaged owners to understand the major assets owned by the business, but their inquiry will need to be broader if they are to understand the financial core capital their ownership represents. Going concern value. Businesses are often worth more than their net asset value, sometimes much more. A profitable business may generate net cash flows substantially in excess of the rate of return the assets would generate if sold and the proceeds reinvested in, say, a portfolio of public securities. Much of that going concern value may be due to the enterprise capital and the human capital of the business, such as goodwill, brand value, loyal customers, specialized knowledge or processes, or industry relationships. Going concern value may also rise and fall with the fate of the industry the business is part of and the state of the business cycle. A business may be worth more, for example, when the biggest players in the the industry have cash and are looking to consolidate and or expand sales by acquiring smaller players, and with less during a recession when those same industry leaders are cash-strapped and having difficulty raising or borrowing expansion capital. An appraiser or an investment banker who's familiar with the industry in which the business operates can help the owners understand what the business is worth on a going concern basis. Risk Profile Once the owners understand the return profile of the business, they will want to consider risk. The business may generate strong net cash flow but be considerably riskier or less risky than alternative businesses the owners could invest in. Risk changes constantly. For example, the business cycle may lead banks to stop lending. The business's success may be based on a technological capability or or even a fashion craze that abruptly becomes obsolete. A business that focuses on a single product or service is likely riskier than a diversified business in the same industry. Leverage. Leverage is another risk factor that engaged owners will want to consider. Judicious borrowing can fuel growth, but too much borrowing can suck cash out of the business in the form of interest payments. When a business is significantly leveraged, the owner's equity may be imperiled in a downturn. If sales and receivables slow to the point that there is not enough cash to make scheduled interest and principal payments, the lender may foreclose on the loan, thereby putting the entire business at risk or forcing management to seek another, potentially more expensive, source of cash. Return to owners. Some family businesses make no distributions to owners. Management, the board, and owners may have agreed to reinvest all free cash flow and net profits back into the business. But sometimes the decision not to pay dividends may not be rooted in the need to fund capital investments. Sometimes the practice of not paying distributions may have begun when accountants pointed out that compensation, which is deductible for income tax purposes, is a more tax-effective way to pull money out of the business than distributions. But whatever the reason for not paying dividends, the practice may well become a policy over time, 
we don't make distributions from this business. When the founding owner passes on the shares, the new owners may find that the no-dividends policy is assumed to still be valid in spite of the change of circumstances. This policy can create unequal outcomes for managing owners versus non-managing owners to the extent that the compensation paid to the managing owner exceeds market rates. Owners of such a business own a non-performing asset from their perspective, and they may find engagement more difficult to achieve if there's no reasonable expectation of a return on their shares. Relative return. What return would the financial capital generate if it were invested in a different business or in a portfolio of securities? This is not a simple exercise. Along with evaluating the positive returns other investments might offer, the owners must consider the risks the taxes, and the transaction costs of dismantling an existing business, not to mention the time spent, the learning curve, and the disruption that would be caused by a radical change in how the financial capital is invested. To some founders and their families, a business is akin to an epic quest, an all-consuming effort to harness an idea and bring an innovative product or service to customers. This quest is often not about profit per se. Founders are willing to take on substantial risk and hardship to prove out their vision, and they create a strong value within their families regarding the importance of the business. Indeed, the business may have created and nurtured substantial human capital and enterprise capital that is highly valued by the family owners and that would be lost if the business were to be shuttered. However, if the business cannot reasonably be expected to create sufficient financial returns to sustain the human capital and business capital over the long haul, it will ultimately consume financial capital. The owners, the ultimate holders of the equity, have the ultimate power and the responsibility to decide whether the business should continue, whether it should change its overall strategy, or whether an alternative deployment of the capital would help the owners and their family achieve their shared purpose. The owners may choose nonetheless to continue a business that performs less well than the alternatives for any number of reasons, but they will want to recognize and acknowledge the choice they are making. But before engaged owners even consider making a decision about the future of the business, they will want to evaluate their other forms of capital, Human Capital and Enterprise Capital Human Capital Human Capital is the sum total of the family's individual and collective human potential. It reflects family members' aptitudes, abilities, and talents, their drive, perseverance, grit, and determination, their strongly held values, and their entrepreneurial zeal. Human Capital reflects the formal and informal education family members have absorbed and the experience and knowledge base they hold individually and as a group. It is the values the family stands for, the actions concerning which they will say without question, we always, or we never. Human capital includes social capital, the family's relationships and connections, its influence and its values, the reservoir of goodwill, and family members' good name within the family, the business, and the wider community. Human capital includes the owners and the members of the owner's family, of course, but it also includes those who bring their individual human capital to the business. Employees, board, advisors, 
as well as other stakeholders such as suppliers, customers, and even competitors. Human capital is the reason other forms of capital have value. Without human contributions of purpose, vision, and drive, financial capital sits idle. The greater the human capital in the business and in the industry and market in which it operates, the more likely it is that the financial and enterprise capital will achieve above-average returns. Human capital is necessary to find opportunity, to create the plan to capture it, and to deploy resources, financial and enterprise capital, to execute the plan. If human capital is lacking, if there isn't sufficient will, knowledge, and experience to carry out this process, the plan may not succeed. Human capital is unique because it is embodied in human beings who have a finite lifespan. As a result, human capital that isn't passed on via education, mentoring, documenting processes and ideas may simply disappear. Furthermore, individuals who don't find a place in the business for their talent, skills, and interests may choose to leave, taking their human capital with them. For these reasons, family business owners who reflect on the relative importance of the different types of core capital may well conclude that human capital is the most important of the three types of capital because it is the engine from which the other types of capital are powered. Furthermore, human capital, if nurtured, can regenerate financial and business capital. Families and family businesses that focus on investing in human capital and building their collective pool of human capital in the family, as well as the business, may be best positioned for long-term success because they are focused on keeping the engine running. Investments in human capital may include education, mentoring, coaching, team building, and attention to creating and sustaining a culture that helps individuals maximize their contributions. Business-owning families are apt to value business management skills and talents within the family above all. This is in large part because business succession planning has so often been framed as a task focused on finding a successor from the next generation who can run the business. Once a capable manager has been identified, everyone sighs with relief and goes back to their individual interests. The business is safe. The business will continue. But this business-first, management-first attitude means that not enough thought may be given to what other skills and talents may be needed in other roles within the family business system and how the system might usefully deploy more of the human capital available to it. For example, who has the emotional intelligence needed to serve as a trustee? Who has the broader worldview needed to be an effective director? Who has an entrepreneurial mindset and the drive to create a completely new business? Who has the patience and focus to coach and mentor young professionals or to systematize and operationalize the brilliant but erratic ideas of the founder? Owners who invest in building human capital within the business and the family, who learn to spot skills and talents, nurture them and put them to best and highest use, will create a more effective pathway to long-term success. Enterprise Capital Enterprise capital is all the unique know-how embodied within the business. It is the array of one-of-a-kind combinations of capital unique to the family and its business that generate a return greater than what the separate elements would generate individually. Enterprise capital is the end result of human capital 
that has been coupled with financial capital to accomplish a specific endeavor, a machine, a system, an algorithm, or a technique that enables a product to be made or a service to be delivered more quickly, artfully, efficiently, safely, economically, ergonomically, in short, better than the competition could do it. Enterprise capital is what enables a business to generate above-average returns. To begin seeing enterprise capital, ask, what does the business do particularly well, and what are the combinations of human and financial capital that enable us to do it? Enterprise capital is not necessarily fixed or permanent. It can be appropriated, copied or imitated by competitors, or made redundant or obsolete by changes in the market or technology. But the possibility of creating new and valuable enterprise capital is what drives entrepreneurial activity in families and businesses. The most successful businesses are not satisfied with the status quo and constantly create new enterprise capital. Enterprise capital creates advantages and opportunities. A family with know-how can leverage it in the existing business by using it to expand into new products, services, or markets, or in entirely new businesses. For example, at a basic level, the existing financial infrastructure of a business, experienced and highly trained staff equipped with sophisticated computer systems and established financial reporting practices, This represents enterprise capital that can be used to support a new business venture that the family might wish to start. Having access to this enterprise capital offers substantial advantages to the new venture's leaders because they can focus on the startup without also having to simultaneously develop administrative infrastructure. Similarly, the new venture might also be able to leverage existing enterprise capital in the form of technical know-how, borrowing systems developed for one product or service and tweaking them in some way that enables them to be used in the new venture. Enterprise capital is at the center of family business success, but it also creates opportunities outside the business. Access to know-how and systems and connections with suppliers, customers, clients, and advisors can create opportunities for family members to learn about business generally and to begin developing new enterprise capital. Working in a family business at any level can be a first step towards running the company, certainly, but it can also help a family member develop a successful career outside the family business. Those who have worked in the business but choose to focus their careers elsewhere will nonetheless have greater insight into the business when it comes to participating in the family business system in other roles, engaged owner, trustee, beneficiary, director, or advisor. Those who had first-hand experience with the enterprise capital, but who are now employed elsewhere, may identify new opportunities that are invisible to others. Owners who are considering whether to sell a business will want to make sure that they think about the unique combinations of human, financial, and enterprise capital of their business that would disappear with this sale. With a potential sale comes the siren call of financial capital, the promise of liquidity, and relief from the day-to-day fears and frustrations that come with owning and operating a business. Liquid capital is indeed lower risk than business capital. It can be invested immediately in securities that will generate a financial return without the financial roller coaster ride that business ownership can entail. 
but financial capital will not achieve the returns that an operating business can achieve until it is combined again with human capital to create new enterprise capital. It is not surprising that some owners who sell businesses gravitate to venture capital, angel investing, and direct investing, preferring the more familiar and perhaps exhilarating ride of an investment in a startup company to the security of a blue chip stock or bond. Those that create new enterprise capital by bringing their own expertise to the selection of the investment, or perhaps by joining the board of directors or otherwise providing strategic guidance to the startup, will often find greater success measured in terms of personal satisfaction as well as financial return. Those families who sell a business and passively invest the proceeds may achieve a measure of financial security, but they may also limit family members' exposure and access to enterprise capital and the opportunities it can generate, with the result that entrepreneurial efforts go unsupported and little new enterprise capital is created. Engaged owners will recognize that enterprise capital, like financial and human capital, can be deployed in activities far beyond the existing business. Engaged owners can be particularly important in helping the family business system recognize enterprise capital, identify new opportunities for deploying it beyond the existing business, and foster new combinations of human and financial capital that can create entirely new enterprise capital. Recognizing enterprise capital as part of the owners and families' opportunity set and consciously seeking to deploy it within and beyond the existing business is one important way that engaged owners can multiply the financial, human, and enterprise capital that their ownership represents. How to Enumerate Core Capital Enumerating core capital is an exercise of thinking about all that has been invested in the business and the family over time, all the assets in all forms that make up their legacy and their future opportunity set. Financial institutions and media will focus on financial capital, but the owners will want to dig deeper. The group may begin the exercise by asking itself, what has been invested in this family and this business over generations? It may also be helpful to ask, what have been the most successful investments of capital? What does this business do better than its competition? Have there been occasions where capital has been lost or even wasted? It can be helpful to look at core capital from different vantage points. What is our financial capital? What is this business worth on a going concern basis? What are its assets worth? What would our shares be worth after tax if we were to sell them? What is the human capital of the family? What is the unique human capital within the business, within our family? What are our values? What's our reputation in the community? What are the lessons this business has taught us? Are we using all the human capital available to us? What is the enterprise capital of this business? What do we do exceptionally well? And what are the specific processes, equipment, systems, and capabilities that enable us to do those things? How else might we use this capital? One member volunteers as a scribe. Using a flip chart, the group sets up three separate pages, one for each of the types of core capital. And then, one by one, each member of the group offers up a specific example of a type of capital. It is easiest to go around the room in a set order, 
which avoids the problem of one member of the group dominating the discussion. To maximize the benefit of the exercise, the group must avoid the temptation to judge, criticize, improve, rank, or otherwise evaluate the core capital elements during this first pass. The goal is simply to get all the possible elements of the core capital out on paper. There is no right or wrong in this exercise. Once the types of capital have been enumerated, ask, are we using our core capital effectively? What other opportunities exist where we might deploy capital? What other opportunities exist where our human and financial capital might be combined to create new enterprise capital? Enumerating core capital is an important place to start the exercise of getting organized because it reminds the owners exactly what is at stake. Owners who spend time grappling with the concept of core capital will recognize that while financial capital is owned by individuals, at least in a legal sense, human capital is owned collectively. Financial capital invested by itself will generate a financial return. Financial capital coupled with human capital will generate enterprise capital, which is the opportunity to achieve above-average returns. Owen Family, January 28, 2012. Martha Owen Jones. Mike was particularly active in our discussion about shared purpose. Having been part of management of Owen Products for years, he's incredibly familiar with the business and what goes on there. He has a special appreciation for our employees and how important Owen Products is to the communities where we operate. As we were working on the shared purpose around ownership of the business, I began thinking about the fact that our ownership goes beyond the business. Part of our desire to work together as owners is to make sure we use the capital for the future of our family, whether we do that in the business or not. Our dad and granddad always focused on Owen Products, but our discussion today got a lot more interesting when we started thinking about the wider purpose of our core capital. We talked about Amanda's responsibilities to Alfred, who depends on the shares in his trust to fund his care, and our responsibilities to our own children. We have a lot more respect for Amanda's responsibilities as trustee now and what that means for the business. Then we talked about ways we might use our capital for the family's benefit, not necessarily by spending it on things, but by investing it in opportunities created by our family. That made us wonder. How can we help Christopher be successful? At first, Mike was inclined to challenge any notion that we might harvest profits from Owen Products to help fund other businesses. But when Amanda pointed out that his twin daughters, Kate and Chloe, both of whom are interested in medicine, not the clay pot industry, might want to use family capital to invest in their careers, well, Mike softened up a bit. So here's the draft of the shared purpose of the owners of Owen Products Limited. We want to be owners in this business together because we have a deep respect for the effort, commitment, and sacrifice of our parents and grandparents to build this business, and we want to continue their work. We want to build on our collective knowledge of terracotta production techniques and ceramic firing techniques. We are a major employer in the towns where our plants are located, and we understand that our employees' livelihoods depend on our success. We encourage participation and leadership by Owen family members, taking into consideration the needs of our business. I'm torn on this, 
My husband, Ryan, is completely focused on Owen products, and Jameson wants to be just like his dad, his granddad, and his great-granddad and really understand the mysteries of what our clays can do. But I can also see that our existing business is an accident of fate in a way. It suited the interests and needs of John and Charlie, but that doesn't mean we have to adapt our futures to the business. If we're smart and thoughtful, we should be able to adapt the business to our futures while still keeping the essential heart of it. I've been thinking about how different our family's shared purpose for the core capital is compared to a public company and also compared to other family businesses I know. Making money definitely is important to ensure that the core capital can be sustained, but we're not necessarily money-driven. We're looking to strengthen the family and encourage entrepreneurialism, whether that entrepreneurial activity is in the business or outside it. So here's the draft of the shared purpose of the Owen Family Core Capital. Our capital provides a safety net for our family first and foremost. We invest in the ideas of our family members because they will create the enterprise capital of our future. We invest in our family relationships because we are stronger together. Enumerating our core capital and articulating our shared purpose was exciting, but also exhausting. We ended our first day with a good dinner. I don't think we've enjoyed each other's company so much in years. There were still big issues to face, including Mike's concerns about whether he as president would be responsible for delivering on all of this. But for the first time, we began to see ourselves as a team who could work together. Christopher Owen. Do I want to be an owner of this business together with my siblings? I have too much to do with my team to focus a lot of time on this stuff. And it is really hard imagining how we're going to be able to make decisions about the business together when I'd rather just get on with things. But I agreed to be here, so I'll try to keep an open mind. Chapter 7, Shared Purpose Shared purpose is the answer to the question, why do we want to be owners of this business together, if at all? Ownership of a business is a choice. And overseeing deployment of core capital is a sufficiently complex undertaking that those who have little time or interest may want to reconsider. Owners may want to be involved for many different kinds of reasons. A shared commitment to perpetuate a family legacy, a bond around the product or service of the business, a desire to expand their core capital, a desire to create and maintain a safety net that can provide employment, opportunities, or financial support for family members or an entire community. Particularly for those who inherit their shares, ownership seems more an accident of fate or genetics than a conscious decision and responsibility. Even those who run the business may not take the time to ask themselves why they want to collaborate together with their fellow owners. But understanding why is important. The shared purpose provides the glue that binds the owners together and keeps them focused on the business and the core capital. How does a group of owners articulate their shared purpose? They begin by asking themselves certain key questions. What has this business meant to our family over generations? What have we as a family invested in it in terms of money, time, effort, and opportunities? 
What are our values as a business-owning family, and how does the business help us further them? How does ownership of the business strengthen or weaken our family? How does ownership of the business affect our role within the wider community? What do I gain from my participation as an owner? How much of our collective and individual core capital in all its forms is invested in this business? Do I want to continue in ownership of this business? What would I gain if I didn't continue? What would I lose? It's useful for each of the owners to consider these questions on their own and then to meet to share their answers, beginning with the question, why do we want to be owners of this business together? And then moving on to the other questions. There are no right or wrong answers. The point is to see common threads and then work to articulate them clearly. Contemplating the process can be unnerving. Uncovering a lack of shared purpose or a disagreement on the role of ownership might be discouraging. A facilitator with family business experience can help to guide the work and keep discussion on track. Very often, a shared purpose meeting can be eye-opening. Owners discover that their shared purpose is stronger than they imagined, and they find a common basis on which to recommit their energies. Shared purpose can reunite and re-energize siblings and cousins who otherwise might not have reason to meet and foster a new sense of collaboration and consensus. But what if there is no shared purpose? Much of the wealth management industry exhibits a continuity bias, the assumption that it is better for families and owners to stay together and invest together for generations. And for some owners, there is indeed an undeniable shared purpose and sense of collective focus and effort. But for others, shared purpose can be more difficult to articulate or even non-existent. When there is a lack of shared purpose, it can be impossible to maintain the energy and focus necessary to sustain engagement, particularly when an owner cannot reach consensus with other owners. Owners who feel bound together against their will run the risk of damaging the business through infighting and inability to work together constructively. In such circumstances, Facing up to the reality of the situation with honesty and good intentions can help clarify the path forward. Sometimes the answer is to consider seeking exit. One owner may seek to sell or redeem his or her shares individually, while the others recommit to going forward. Other times, the other owners may share in the assessment that there is no shared purpose and the group may consider selling the business splitting it into several businesses that can be run independently, or disinvesting from it over time by pulling capital from the business to redeploy for other purposes. There is no single right answer. What is important is determining where there is consensus and where there is not. Owen Family, January 29, 2012. Amanda Owen Cooper. I was surprised by the discussions yesterday. Having to think beyond financial value to see the different kinds of capital represented by our business and our family helped me broaden my perspective. I want to honor what my parents and grandparents achieved, but I guess I'm coming to see that we don't have to follow in exactly the same path. What we need to do is make sure we don't waste all our capital. That was the surprising part of the conversation. Once we realized all we had at stake, that we could plan our own future and that we could be stronger together than apart, 
we began to think more collaboratively. I'm concerned about the trust for Alfred. As trustee, I have a fiduciary obligation to him. We acknowledge that an element of our shared purpose for the core capital is that it will serve as a safety net. But Alfred needs a different safety net from the rest of us. Yes, we depend on the business, particularly Mike and Martha. But we have other sources of income besides dividends to cover our needs. Alfred's entire future care is riding on the business. I raised the question of whether it might make sense to redeem out the shares held by Alfred's trust and then invest the proceeds in a very stable investment fund. That would protect the nest egg for Alfred while giving Mike and Ryan more room to take some risks to grow the business. Mike immediately began to worry that if we redeemed out one shareholder, wouldn't everyone want cash instead of their shares? Then where would the company be? It was good to see Mike open up about his concerns around the business rather than just being strong and silent like our dad. Mike had an opportunity to say that he wants to lead Owen Products, but he isn't sure he's up for running the company the way granddad and dad ran it, with one president making all the decisions. And we in turn had an opportunity to tell him we appreciate all that he's doing and encourage him to think about how he might organize the company differently. Ideas included getting more management training, reorganizing the existing staff, and running the eastern and western parts of the business as fully separate operations. We also talked a bit about the problems that the company is facing right now. Martha offered that Ryan could help Mike if Mike would only let him. Mike started to be defensive about managing the company, and I was worried that the discussion would spin out of control. But the facilitator helped Mike and the rest of us talk openly about ideas and possibilities without feeling that we needed to make a decision now or even pass judgment on the ideas. What is important was having the dialogue and raising some ideas with the goal of getting ideas on the table before we narrow down the options. If we can come to general consensus about our vision for the business, it will help the board and management build a strategic plan. We learned a lot about Christopher's work at Eastern University, too, and the potential business opportunities his team is creating. I'd like to see us invest somehow. So here's the draft vision for Owen Products Limited and the core capital in 2032. We as owners will oversee all our capital and not just the financial capital invested in the business. We will have processes in place to enable us to meet this responsibility, keeping in mind our other obligations. Financial capital. We will sustain and prudently grow the financial capital invested in the business. Our personal financial capital is part of the core capital, and we will seek to invest it rather than simply spend it. Human capital. Owen Products will have the management team it needs to achieve its strategic plan. Management will have the abilities and resources to manage the company successfully. Owen Products will endeavor to use our family's human capital judiciously and will avoid shifting all leadership responsibilities to one individual. We as family owners will invest our time and energy in educating and preparing the next generation of our family to ensure that they have the skills needed to sustain and grow the core capital inside and outside the business. 
We will encourage family leadership, but recognize that we will be more successful if we also engage the talents and interests of non-family members in leadership positions. Owen Products Board will be made up of knowledgeable individuals who bring insight and access to additional resources. Owners will be educated and prepared to handle their responsibilities. We support family leadership, but recognize that we will be more successful if we also engage the talents and interests of non-family members in leadership positions. Enterprise Capital Owen Products is the engine of Owen Family Capital. The company will have the resources it needs to continue to operate successfully. The company is in a mature industry. It will strive to build market share, but not seek growth for growth's sake. A substantial part of Owen Products' success has been due to our production and logistics systems, which are the most advanced in our industry. We will invest in maintaining and strengthening this capability and also in developing other ways to leverage this enterprise capital. We will encourage Owen family members to create new entrepreneurial opportunities and will consider redeploying enterprise capital from our existing business activities to help fund them. We will have in place a forum to evaluate and support such opportunities. And here's the draft of our mission for the owners of Owen Products between 2012 and 2015. Create an owner's council to focus on refining our understanding of core capital, shared purpose, and vision, especially for capital outside the business. Preparing next generation owners to be engaged. Ownership succession, especially estate planning. Developing a process for evaluating and investing core capital in opportunities outside Owen Products Limited. Strengthen the board of Owen Products and lay out the owner's vision so that the board can provide effective strategic oversight and support for management and create a board owner nominating committee. Articulate our vision to the board and work with the board to develop a strategic planning process to guide board and management's efforts. Encourage the creation of a family council to strengthen family bonds and sustain the Owen legacy. And actively monitor and evaluate opportunities to invest core capital in family-generated opportunities. Michael Owen. Would dad and granddad support this vision and mission, or are they rolling in their graves? I think they would support it. I'm beginning to see that my fellow owners don't want to meddle in management. They want to help make sure that management has the resources it needs and that the business has a clear direction. I'm also beginning to understand the value of thinking about deploying core capital outside the business. The business was everything to my dad and granddad. But given our growing human capital and our enterprise capital, our future can and should be broader than just the business. Chapter 8. Vision and Mission Vision Vision is the owner's collective view of the future of the core capital and the business. It is the answer to the question, now that we can articulate our shared purpose, what is our destination? What future do we see as a result of committing to our shared purpose? Clear and well-articulated vision animates the shared purpose and creates a sense of mission. The owners can see the future and focus their efforts on creating plans to achieve it. 
And while the shared purpose belongs to the owners as a group, the vision becomes the vision for the entire business and the core capital. It is the animating driver of the business. The owner's vision frames the board's discussion of strategy. It creates the direction and boundaries for management's deployment of resources. It gives family members an understanding of the purpose and direction of the business. That is why it is important for owners to take the time to articulate their shared purpose and vision. As the owners of the business and the core capital, they are responsible for setting the ultimate, highest-level goals for the business. And if they ignore that responsibility or delegate it to other groups, then they risk having the business run away with their capital in directions that don't further their shared purpose. For example, imagine a business with substantial cash reserves. The owners, having experienced business cycles when no bank would lend to the business, see that financial capital as a nest egg that can help them weather financial downturns. But without guidance from the owners, a board, particularly an independent board well-stocked with veterans of public companies in the industry, may be concerned that the cash is not earning a sufficient return and propose embarking on a series of acquisitions to expand the business's capabilities, betting that the growth will outpace the risk. This is a reasonable strategy from the perspective of a public company, but it is entirely contrary to the shared purpose of these owners. These owners must articulate a vision that sets basic parameters for use of cash reserves to provide guidance to the board and management in their strategic planning work. How does a group of owners articulate their vision? First, they remind themselves of the core capital and their shared purpose. It is important for owners to recommit to their shared purpose before embarking on a visioning exercise, especially if time has passed since the shared purpose work. The owners then ask, what does success look like? What will the business and all its forms of core capital look like in 20 years if we are successful at achieving our vision? At the outset, the owners will want to commit to speaking for themselves while acting with respect and maintaining an open mind. Absolute consensus is extremely rare in visioning, and the most positive outcomes come when participants come to the table without preconceptions. As with the shared purpose exercise, it can be helpful to do the visioning work with a facilitator who can manage the discussion, maintain order, and avoid taking sides. One member volunteers as scribe. Using a flip chart, the group sets up three separate pages, one for each of the types of core capital. Then one by one, each member of the group offers up a vision of the future in 20 years for each type of capital, human, social, financial, and business. Go around the group in a set order, which reduces the risk that one member of the group will dominate the discussions. To maximize the benefit of the exercise, the group must avoid the temptation to judge, criticize, improve, rank, or otherwise evaluate the vision elements during this first pass. The goal is simply to get all the possible elements of the vision out on paper. There is no right or wrong in this exercise. Each vision is stated as an outcome rather than a process. The owners may wish to set forth the vision in terms of the types of capital. For example, in 2037, financial capital, 
the business is financially stable with adequate financial reserves, owners have built capital other than their shares. Human capital. Because the owners have set aside financial capital separate from the business, family members enjoy excellent educations and can depend on family resources in the event of emergency, which frees them to achieve their individual goals. G3 family members have opportunities to work in the business. Because the business is an excellent place to work, it enjoys very low rates of employee attrition. Enterprise capital. The business enjoys a reputation as a good citizen of the community. The business has expanded into new markets by harnessing employee know-how. An entrepreneur's fund, started up by the owners, provides seed capital and technical and startup assistance for business opportunities generated by family members. So next, the group steps back and looks at each of the core capital pages one by one. Is there a consensus around the vision in each area of core capital? Is the vision clear, or would it benefit from greater detail? Work to bring the vision to three or four points for each type of capital. Review the vision for each of the forms of core capital. Do they align? Give them a reality check. Can they be achieved simultaneously? Do they potentially conflict? For example, we have substantial capital reserves that enable us to weather ups and downs in the business cycle. And we have invested our free cash flow in startup opportunities. If so, is there an acceptable middle ground? Visioning requires a balance of dream, ambition, and before the process is finished, healthy skepticism. The ultimate test, does this vision further the shared purpose? Mission. Now that the owners have articulated their shared purpose and vision, the final element of getting organized is to lay out a plan. What do we have to do or become in order to achieve the vision? In essence, the mission is the plan that funnels vision and shared purpose into a high-level strategy to guide the business and ensure the successful deployment of the core capital. A mission exercise should be undertaken reasonably soon after the visioning exercise, while owners are energized by the vision. Once again, the group will want to begin by revisiting the shared purpose and remembering why they choose to continue as owners of this business and its core capital together. Next, they review the vision in detail for each of the forms of core capital. The work of this session centers on the question, what must we as, as owners do and what must we coordinate with other groups to do to achieve the vision? How will we measure success? Is there a priority among the elements of the vision? The group should ask itself, what form of capital is the most important? Does this group put financial capital goals first? Enterprise capital goals first? Human capital goals first? What are the potential trade-offs? For example, if the group wants to invest in the human capital of the family by staking family members in their startups, where will that cash come from? Will it come from dividends? What implications would a policy favoring greater dividends have for the capital needs of the business and the expansion opportunities that it might generate? The next question is, what are the steps to achieve this element and who would undertake them? 
Working through the answer to this question helps owners see the interplay of the business and the core capital. Some of the steps can only be taken within the business, for example, expanding into new markets, while others can only be taken outside the business, for example, staking next-generation family members in new entrepreneurial ventures in entirely different industries. This exercise thus helps to clarify the future role of the business in the system. Again, the exercise isn't about the business alone. It's about how the activities and decisions regarding the business relate to the future of the human capital and enterprise capital, as well as the financial capital. This is not easy work. If there is no consensus on the vision for a particular type of core capital, or the priorities for the core capital, it is important for the owners to ask, why not? Where do we differ in our vision? These areas of difference deserve open discussion. What is the scale of the difference? Is it a matter of different, differing priorities, which could be balanced through thoughtful discussion? Or do the different visions really point to a previously unrecognized misalignment around the shared purpose? The process is iterative. Sometimes, if the group is stuck on articulating the mission, it can be helpful to go back and ground the discussion in the shared purpose and vision to bring the group back to consensus. The goal of the mission exercise is to develop a list of steps that need to be undertaken over the next two to five years to achieve the vision in keeping with the shared purpose. The point is not to develop a strategic plan per se, but rather for the owners to recognize and articulate what needs to happen with respect to the core capital inside and outside the business to reach the 20-year vision. If the vision calls for creating new enterprise capital outside the business, for example, by creating an entrepreneur's fund to provide seed capital for startup investments launched by family members, and the business is the sole generator of the financial capital, then the strategic plan for the business will need to generate harvesting opportunities through either distributions or partial redemptions. At this point, readers might ask, aren't the owners doing strategic planning that is the responsibility of the board and management? The answer is no. The development of shared purpose, vision, and mission is the work that owners must do in order to define the boundaries of the strategic planning work of the board and management. Leaving the boundaries up to board and management is risky. Board and management may assume that the founder's vision continues uninterrupted. They may assume that the owners will measure performance purely by financial metrics. They may substitute their own vision or the vision of a public company in the same industry. For example, some board members may assume that owners would want fast growth or a perfectly level dividend or being listed in the Forbes 100. In any event, it is highly unlikely that a board will arrive at a strategy that meets the shared purpose and achieves the vision if they don't have input from the owners on what their shared purpose and vision happen to be. Only if the owners do the work of articulating the vision will the board know what to work with management to aim for. Owen Family, January 29, 2012 Christopher Owen. As I mentioned earlier, I haven't been enthusiastic about these meetings. Ownership seems like a lot of work, 
and it involves a lot of time I don't think I'm going to have, given my responsibilities at the university and my new business. But then again, Mike, Martha, and Amanda are my siblings, and Owen Products has been very important to my family. And leaving all the work to Mike and expecting big dividends doesn't seem fair either. Thinking about this core capital idea, can my family help me launch my new business? Do I want them as my partners? Maybe I should sell my own product shares instead so that I have financial capital to invest in my business? Is the shared purpose and vision for Owen Products good enough? I think it makes sense for Owen Products and the family, and, and it's feasible. I'm just not sure yet that it's right for me, because I don't know that I can spend so much time and effort. And yet, I am part of the human capital here, and... Maybe the enterprise capital can help me turn my team's research into a practical business. Would it be right for me to pull away from the family? Mike Cohen. Well, that was interesting. Yes, I have more support than I thought. And we demonstrated that we four siblings can be in a room together for two days and even agree with each other sometimes. But is this the right future for Owen Products? The vision calls for major change in the way we do things. Dad never had to get strategic plans approved by the board or pay attention to what owners wanted. But then again, I know I can't work the way he did. My siblings are sharing the weight with me. Maybe this is a better plan. Is the shared purpose and vision good enough for me? It works for the business, and it's feasible in the real world. I think my siblings are committed, with the possible exception of Christopher. I'm okay with it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Martha Owen Jones. After so much discussion, it was a little nerve-wracking to go around the room and find out whether everyone thought the plan was good enough. I found myself really pulling for the plan because it helps my family. Ryan will actually get a real role in the business, I think, and Jameson should have an opportunity inside the business if he still wants it when he graduates, more as an owner. I'm wondering whether it's time to make Ryan an owner, but since he's not bloodline, that may be more than my family can cope with. I like being part of the business and having a role in making major decisions as an owner. I don't feel like I'm riding in the passenger seat with a blindfold anymore. I'm really excited by the possibility of investing in core capital and not just the business. We have a lot of enterprise capital that could be put to work in different ways and we're stronger together. We'll see whether Christopher finds it compelling enough. Is it good enough? Mm, yes, I think so. I want to make sure we talk about a dividend policy, though. It doesn't make sense that Mike makes a good salary, but the owners don't get dividends. Amanda Owen Cooper I think this new way of looking at ownership creates a better balance between what the company wants to do and what the owners are willing to invest in. It requires attention, and it's going to be time-consuming, but this is our family's capital, and we're responsible for it. Doing this work takes some of the pressure off of Mike. I also am kind of excited about the chance to work together with my siblings to see what we can achieve together. So it's good enough for me, but it's not good enough for the trust that our Uncle Fred created for Alfred can't take the kind of risks that we may want to take and still make sure he has the money he needs to live on. So I feel pushed and pulled. I think we're going to need to buy the trust out. 
But then again, 25% is a big percentage. That raises all kinds of issues that we're going to need to think about. Appraisal, terms of sale, and whether Christopher might demand to be bought out if the trust is. Chapter 9. Is it good enough? The good enough standard for consensus. Enumerating core capital and coming to consensus around a common shared purpose and vision can be tough work, particularly for larger groups. Very rarely will every member find that the results of the group's efforts align perfectly with their own individual purpose and vision, and this is especially true when the ownership group includes one or more directors, members of senior management, trustees, or non-family owners. Reaching consensus in such circumstances can be difficult. Did participants fully evaluate the choices, or did they rush to a conclusion or feel forced to decide? Why did they decide as they did? It can be helpful to test the soundness of the shared purpose and vision and to determine whether consensus has in fact been reached by holding them up against the good enough standard. The good enough standard for consensus requires an affirmative answer to four questions. One. Is it right for me individually? Two, is it right for the owner group and the family? Three, will it work for the business and for the core capital as a whole? And four, is it feasible in the real world? When ownership is held by a group, no plan will fit all the needs and desires of each member of the group perfectly. The good enough standard helps participants to be reality based and pragmatic in their discussions about an important decision. Owner groups will find it useful to adopt the good enough standard early on in the process because it can help group members pinpoint their concerns. By working through the four questions, a participant can think in more concrete terms and thereby bring the discussion around to a particular matter of concern. The standard helps participants to relax and focus, and avoids the tendency to vote a matter up or down too early in the discussion process because it invites participants to think through and discuss a question from multiple perspectives. Owen Family, February 21st, 2012. Amanda Owen Cooper. My siblings and I had a conference call this morning to talk about the trust for Alfred and what our redemption policy should be in this case. As you know, I'm the trustee and I have a fiduciary duty to act in his interests and invest the trust assets prudently. I explained my responsibilities and Alfred's health needs. The trust is his primary source of income and it pays for expensive residential care. Alfred is in his 50s, so it's my responsibility to make sure that the trust assets are invested in a way that secures his long-term future. My siblings agreed that dividends might not be sufficient to fund those needs and that it would be better for the trust assets to be invested in liquid securities that could be sold as necessary. To make sure we understood the implications, we talked for a while about how a redemption might work. We would need to get an appraisal for the shares to figure out how much they are worth. Cash is tight at Owen Products right now because of some capital investment being made in the Western facility that Dad planned a couple of years ago. This reminded us that the planning cycle for the business is very long, and our vision will take quite a while to work its way through the cycle. Mike noted that cash on hand is not enough to fund the redemption. The redemption could be funded with bank debt. Rates are reasonable right now. 
Alternatively, the business could pay cash for part of the shares and provide a promissory note secured by some of the assets of the business. We recognize that this is a matter for board approval. We will recommend the redemption, but it is the board's responsibility to approve the redemption and to determine the mechanics. I'm a member of the board, but will abstain from the voting on this topic since I face a three-way conflict of interest, owner, director, and trustee. So if I think about it, what we are doing is pulling financial capital from the business in order to further our shared purpose for the core capital. We all feel this is the right thing to do given family needs, even if it isn't optimal from a business perspective. We also asked Christopher whether he had decided whether our vision is good enough for him. Would he be pursuing redemption of his shares as well? I was worried. If he wanted to redeem along with Alfred's trust, we would have a major financial challenge that could cripple the company. Somewhat to our surprise, he said he had thought about it for a long while, that he wanted to remain an owner, and that he would do his best to uphold his responsibilities. Chapter 10, Alternatives to Engaged Ownership Those who become engaged owners focus on recognizing, growing, and sustaining the core capital in all its forms that their ownership represents. Engaged owners who recognize that there is more at stake than money and bring interest, understanding, ability, and long-sightedness and broad-sightedness to their role increase the odds that the family's human capital and enterprise capital, as well as its financial capital, will be deployed thoughtfully to achieve their shared purpose and vision. Not all owners will want to be engaged owners for all sorts of reasons. Lack of desire or ability on the part of an owner isn't failure. Rather, it is a reality that the ownership group will need to face. An owner may be too busy and unable to turn away from other obligations to devote the time, commitment, and energy required to be an engaged owner of a business. An owner may be angry or estranged from other owners and unable to set aside deep-seated personal feelings, animosity, jealousy, dislike, or frustration. One owner's system of values and principles may be so different from another's that they will never be able to work together to articulate the owner's shared purpose and vision for the future. An owner may simply not be interested, or an owner may be deeply interested, but due to illness, age, or incapacity, unable to take part in the process of ownership decision-making that engaged ownership requires. What then? If the majority of the group is willing, interested, and able to take on the work of engagement, then there are two options that would enable the group to move forward. Exit or delegation. Exit. When there is an owner who cannot or does not want to join in the work and whose interests do not align with the shared purpose and vision, the best option may be an exit through either cross-purchase, where one or more of the other owners buy out the exiting owner, or redemption, where the business purchases the exiting owner's shares. The process for exit often is laid out in the corporate documents, in particular the shareholders' agreement or buy-sell agreement. Engaged owners will want to avoid the natural instinct to minimize the exit price paid for the shares. Discounts, whether for minority interest or lack of marketability, should be transparent fully explained, and applied consistently over similar transactions. The cost in human capital of an aggrieved and angry former shareholder 
will be much greater over the long term than the savings in financial capital. It is important for controlling owners who intend to transfer their shares to a group to assess whether the group is in fact interested in becoming owners and capable of engagement. Transferring ownership to any individual who cannot or will not participate in group decision-making or to a group that has never been able to see eye-to-eye sets the group up for failure and can potentially put the business and the core capital at risk. This points out the value of opening up the conversation among generations well before any estate planning takes place. No matter how loving the controlling owner's intention, if the recipients of the shares have no interest in working together as owners and no preparation, the plan is likely to sow discord. Delegation Another option is for the owner who is unable or unwilling to undertake the work of engagement to delegate the task of engaged decision-making to another individual, generally by granting a proxy. This mechanism is particularly effective when the unwillingness or inability is due to some circumstance that is temporary. The owner may be too young, suffering from an illness, or unable to focus on ownership matters due to a major life event such as a divorce, childbirth, or caring for an ill or injured family member. The delegation, the granting of the proxy, should be for a set period, which could be extended if necessary, and the proxy holder will need to shoulder the task of keeping the non-participating member reasonably informed of the work of the owners and the decisions they are facing. Otherwise, the owner whose decision-making has been delegated may find it overwhelmingly difficult to catch up when his circumstances change and he wants to become engaged. Other Options If more than one member of the group is unwilling to take on the work of developing consensus around shared purpose and vision, or the work itself generates disagreement that the group feels is insurmountable, then they will need to consider a different set of options. Being part of a group that cannot find a common identity is uncomfortable and potentially explosive, particularly when the business has been part of the family's universe for generations. The goal in such a situation is to choose an option that is most likely to preserve the members' relationships as a family while also sustaining the core capital. When there is no common shared purpose or vision, the risk of losing core capital is real. The job of the owners in such a circumstance is to reorganize ownership and decision-making in some way that can be sustainable over time. Pruning the tree If there is a subset of the group that wants to go forward as engaged owners while another group wishes to exit, then the group as a whole will want to weigh the cost and benefit of a larger exit. Pruning the tree, engineering a multi-party redemption or cross-purchase that will concentrate ownership in fewer hands, is a common strategy when an owner-manager wants to take the business in a direction that doesn't suit the shared purpose or vision of the rest of the owners. The challenge for the owner-manager who will remain an owner as others exit is to recognize and value what is at stake for those who are selling their shares. The transaction will be challenging from a purely financial perspective. Is the selling price fair? And are the terms acceptable for both parties and feasible for the business over the long term? It will also be challenging from a core capital perspective. Will human capital in the form of family relationships and reputation be harmed? Will selling shareholders have any expectation of future participation in non-financial core capital? For example, 
Will their children be welcomed if they apply to work in the business in the future? Will the business continue to support the same charitable activities that the family as a whole has championed in the past? Selling shares that represent a family legacy can raise strong emotions. And coming to agreement around the terms of such a deal may be time-consuming and even seem irrational at times. Those who opt to remain as owners will be most successful if they appreciate and respect that those who are selling are coping with issues that go far beyond the finances of the deal. At the same time, the challenge for the owners who wish to exit is to recognize and value the task that the owners who stay on will face as they continue forward with the business. A redemption or buyout removes human capital as well as financial capital from the business and may impair some of the enterprise capital as well. The exiting owners will have very different interests and concerns and often will cease to be sounding boards and ready supporters. Often, debt will be taken on to finance the transaction, with the result that the business must overcome additional hurdles to achieve profitability. Funding the exit may drain away cash that otherwise would have been used for capital investment strategies. After funding the exit, the business may not be able to make the capital improvements, expand its market presence, or acquire additional businesses. The exiting owners will best serve the core capital if they recognize the importance of balancing the cost of the exit with the future needs of the business. There are a variety of creative ways to structure an exit from a business that can safeguard the business while also achieving an attractive price for the sellers. Payments can be made over time, with the sellers taking a security interest, or income-producing assets such as real estate can be spun out. Owners who commit to the exit and then work together to achieve mutually acceptable terms will enhance both their financial and their human capital. Dividing into silos. Where a business consists of multiple businesses and multiple owner-managers, none of whom can reach consensus around a shared pur purpose and vision, division of the business may offer a reasonable alternative to engaged ownership. Under a siloed system, the business is separated into divisions or subsidiaries, each of which is run by an owner-manager. Sometimes the group will agree to common ownership but divided control, leaving most decisions to be made at the silo level, just a few at the corporate level. Just as pruning the tree recreates the controlling owner-led decision-making system that prevailed before ownership was transferred by the former controlling owner, dividing into silos creates a group of divisions each operated by a different member of the group and with minimal common decision-making. Dividing into silos does permit a group of owners to share enterprise capital, including branding and marketing, administrative systems, and technical know-how or R&D. Provided the group is willing to share the benefits and risks of joint ownership and can deal with making decisions together on a limited and defined set of issues, Dividing into silos might be more cost-effective than a complete separation. Spin-off, split-off, split-up. Sometimes, when there is no shared purpose and vision, the group may decide to forgo common ownership entirely and choose instead to divide the enterprise into separate, standalone businesses, each owned solely by its own controlling owner. This is a more extreme version of dividing into silos, 
with no common ownership or shared operations. If there is truly no shared purpose, a complete and final division may be a more workable choice than maintaining common ownership. However, dividing up the business makes it more difficult to share enterprise capital so freedom can come at the expense of core capital. Sale If there is no hope or expectation that the owners will reach consensus around shared purpose and vision, and there is no owner willing and able to buy out the others, then, perhaps ironically, sale of the business may be the only option that can preserve financial and human capital for the family, though perhaps with the loss of enterprise capital and human capital within the business. When a business is considered a family member, and owners have been told for their entire lives that ownership must stay in the family at all costs, it can be difficult for owners to admit that continued ownership of the business is impossible. But owners who try to keep the business in the family in spite of a lack of shared purpose and vision will find that human capital becomes impaired first, as family, board, and management disagree on the future course of action and relationships begin to fray as a result. Impaired human capital then leads to impaired enterprise capital as poor communication damages systems and processes. Ultimately, the business suffers financially. Coming together for the limited purpose of achieving a successful sale may be difficult, but recognition of all that is at stake, all the human capital and enterprise capital as well as the financial capital, may help generate sufficient consensus.